God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him. Jaron, he, him. And our special guests tonight are Nino and Ethan from the Left Shelf Podcast. How are you guys doing? We're back, baby. Hell yeah. <laughs> here to do some more dunking on and cap slash libertarian. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, always good to have you guys here. Um, we get along very well with Nino and Ethan, uh, Nino, she, her, and Ethan, he, him, yeah. and always happy to have you guys on and shit on ANCAPs. It seems to be our shtick whenever we have you guys on. So we're happy to do that. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do more of that tonight. So the last time we had you guys on, we were talking about Ayn Rand mostly, and we kind of hinted at talking about Thomas Sowell. And I think that's what we'll probably focus on tonight, uh, entirely. Um, so I found this article that was really good. I wanted to find like a Marxist critique of Thomas Sowell and his thinking, and I found a great one. And so this is an article called Thomas Sowell's Myths as Facts, Part 1. Uh, this was published uh, September 16, 2020, by someone that goes by the name Ruthless Kami, 1871. <laughs> oh, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good username. And this is on the... It's on the ruthlesscritic.com. So this is just an article that they published basically at their blog, but notwithstanding, the points are unassailable. And it's just great to read through. So I'll just start with this because it actually gives like an intro to Thomas Sell himself as a figure and his work. So uh, right to the article. As someone who is openly Marxist, communist, and maintains open dialogue and communication with those on the libertarian right, I'm constantly bombarded with suggestions to read the work of Thomas Sell. Sell is an intellectual held in high regard by many from libertarian and conservative circles. His work is free of most academic jargon and easy enough to understand. Sal also claims to have been a, quote, Marxist through his 20s, coming to see the light and abandon his radical beliefs only after studying so-called vulgar economics at the University of Chicago. Much of his work is dedicated to attacking flailing liberal policies, an admirable endeavor to be sure, and more importantly, advocating a laissez-faire approach to economics, much like his mentor, Milton Friedman. Go ahead, Stone. Yeah, I mean, I just... I just did a quick Google search. He went to the University of Chicago, Howard University, Columbia, and Harvard. Like, how the fuck were you a Marxist? Yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, he has this, like, whole rags to riches story (laughs) where he's like, oh, yeah, I grew up in Harlem and I worked, like, for minimum wage and then, you know, pulled myself up and started working hard and then, like, got accepted at all of these institutions. And, like, yeah, he has, like big name institutions behind him for sure mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy yeah he's the token chicago boy and we'll, we'll get into why that's funny but yeah um so milton friedman we should recall was the prime mover behind the chicago school of economics at the university of chicago where he took a position in 1946 and remained for 30 years before going on to be an advisor to ronald reagan sowell received his phd in economics from the university of chicago in 1968 where by this time friedman's toxic doctrines were being peddled with exceptional zeal it should also be remembered that the quote Chicago boys is a term Friedman himself used in his memoirs to refer to those economists trained under his guidance and placed into powerful positions within the CIA-sponsored Pinochet dictatorship, which wreaked havoc across Chile following the U.S.-backed military coup of September 11, 1973, which ousted the democratically elected Marxist president Salvador Allende. Allende was replaced with the exceptionally cruel dictator Augusto Pinochet. Behind the force of Pinochet's dictatorship and with the support from the CIA, Friedman's economic doctrines were ruthlessly imposed upon the Chilean people. Despite the disastrous outcomes of Friedman's policies for the masses in Chile, corporate elites saw a golden ticket to personal enrichment. Unsurprisingly, Chicago school economic policies were then eagerly implemented by capitalist social orders across Latin America's southern cone. The faithful acolytes of the Chicago school, working with Friedman himself as a guide, advanced ruthless privatization and pro-market policies which opened up people and resources of Chile, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay to exploitation by domestic aristocrats and Western corporations. 
This unleashed appalling waves of extreme inequality, economic crisis, loss of democratic freedoms, and violent repression and terror against the masses. And so I'm just kind of interjecting here because this is why we catch a lot of flack on the left for not taking the time to differentiate between ANCAPs, libertarians, or even neoliberals. Because once you see enough of these examples of the revolving door that these people walk through so easily, um, not to mention the outright cooperation that goes on between these supposedly differing ideologies, you start to understand that they are all the same root belief system and just with like varying levels of force behind them. Yeah. And, but if you were to ask them, you know, they're doing like so much good for the people, just like, you know, bringing American powers, Western powers to their country and like, you know, increasing production of wealth, whatever that means. And yeah, I think if you were to ask like any of these thinkers, it's like totally fine. No, (laughs) no harm, no foul. Yeah. Yeah. Like bouncing off of Nino's point though, like the whole idea behind you know, oh, we're bringing them this thing and the transition is going to be difficult, but it'll be worth it in the end. Like that's still rooted in like what Ayn Rand was talking about in that horrid speech that you gave on our last episode on this subject about like why the American Indian deserved to be exterminated. Yeah. Um, And it's, there's, I know I've plugged this book several times, but Roxanne Ortiz has just such a good understanding of native history. and, And what was actually destroyed was a complex group of federations that had established trade routes. They were taking care of natural environments in a way that like modern technology fails to do. They were growing and harvesting and taking care of crops in a way that has changed the entire mode of how the world eats. The American Indian has completely changed the entire global economy, but they're still just given this sleight of hand, like, you know, oh, well, they were backwards and they didn't know how to build you know, a skyscraper or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Um, and that same mentality is behind that westward expansion that we see from neoliberals, libertarians, whatever brand of right fash bullshit you want to bring to the table. Just real quick, I think it's funny when people say that kind of thing and they're the same like history bros who are into history as far as like they know the U.S. version of history, like white people created everything and then conveniently ignore like these enormous pyramids that are like in these tropical places near the equator where these societies were formed. Aliens. Well, now that's what I was getting at. Like now you also see them showing up as TikTok videos, like where they find these pyramids in the ocean on Google Maps. And they're like, what crazy alien society was this created by? It's like, no, that was fucking the people that you think were primitive people that you keep writing off. Like they had entire cultures and you just don't care about them. Yeah, but they also think of them as aliens. So. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. But also, I mean, the Native Americans, like, they didn't even understand that if you harvest a single crop only, that you can completely control the market and exploit prices <laughs> and, and completely push out competition. Like, they just did not understand basic economics. That's what it came yeah. down to. <laughs> Wasn't that the, the Kissinger quote? If you control the food, you control the people. <laughs> I <Jesus>. don't doubt it. <laughs> For the record, that book is called An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and it's fucking great. The Roxanne Ortiz book? Yeah. Yeah, she's mentioned later in this article uh, for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's see. It was within this academic milieu that Sowell received his training. Sowell became somewhat of a domestic Chicago boy and has long since planted his roots as a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution, where Friedman also ended up, a think tank at Stanford University, where he has been since 1980. I think it's kind of ironic. I don't think they did this on purpose, but 
the author calls Sal a domestic Chicago boy. And I would kind of refer to him as the domesticated Chicago boy because he literally is just like the Uncle Tom for this entire ideology. It's fucked up. <laughs> it would not be at all inaccurate to describe both Sal's mentor and Sal himself as neoliberal. In fact, Friedman is neoliberalism's most famous advocate and served as advisor for the quintessential neoliberal administrations, those of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Neoliberalism, as explained by economist Anwar Shaikh, quote, portrays markets as self-regulating social structures that optimally serve all economic needs, efficiently utilize all economic resources, and automatically generate full employment for all persons who truly want to work. Poverty, unemployment, and periodic economic crises are claimed to exist because markets have been constrained by labor unions, the state, and a host of social practices rooted in culture and history. Overcoming poverty, therefore, requires creating, quote, market-friendly social structures in the poorer countries and strengthening existing ones in the richer countries. This involves curtailing union strength so that employers can hire and fire whom they choose, privatizing state enterprises so that workers will fall under the purview of domestic capital, and opening up domestic markets to foreign capital and foreign goods. What's up, Stoic? I hate to completely sidetrack, but there's, just because you mentioned Reagan and Thatcher, mm-hmm. there's this thought I've been kind of mulling over for a few days now, and I just like y'all's opinion. So the 86 Parenti quote where he says, as we all know, uh, Thatcher is just Reagan and drag. Is that problematic? Because I love, <laughs> I, I love, I love that quote, but I, I keep thinking, you know, could it have been softened? Like, I don't know. I feel like it's okay. I mean, I feel yeah. like people still do drag shows and that's not problematic. I think it's like, I think it's, I, don't know. I think it's fine. I think it's fun. I think, I, I feel like the drag community might take it as offense to be compared to Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I feel like some of my drag friends would probably laugh at that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I've just been wondering. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to comment on like the whole free trade um, section that you read about Mike. And it's really interesting to me because Thomas Sowell was also like, yes, trade is good. We should trade. You should have a flow of ideas. But then at the same time, he has no problem putting sanctions on countries that like impede trade. And same with like immigration. He's always like, yeah, flow of ideas. That's how you grow and innovate. But then when Trump was like, yes, we should put up a wall and like not let immigrants in. They're like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. That that totally makes sense. Because like, yeah, we don't <laughs> we don't like need those people. We have like other people to like, you know, innovate with and stuff like that. So it's like. I don't know. It's very kind of inconsistent and definitely rooted in like racism and classism and yeah, just ideology. It's so weird how people on the right who claim to espouse free markets always end up supporting and voting for parties that free up markets for corporations, but not for themselves. And then when capitalism gets to this stage where it is absolutely cronyism and corporatism, they act surprised that that happened, even though they've been supporting that, that transition all along. And then they want to decry that as if it's not real capitalism or not just how capitalism actually works in practice. And they won't accept any other arguments. Yeah, I definitely hate that crony capitalism thing. Uh, You see that a lot on the internet now. And it's like, just just like own up to what... (laughs) The thing is that I feel like the people who call it crony capitalism and like therefore imply that it's not a thing that they want, that's a lie. They want the kind of capitalism that is out there now. I don't think that they actually want like a real free market in which there's like the potential for like robust unions and things like that. They don't want things like that. 
they want the kind of like top heavy world that we have right now. But the whole libertarian thing is pretending that you don't want the things you obviously do. So they call it like, oh, it's like cronyism or it's this or it's that. But like, I don't buy any of that. (laughs) Well, because this actually gets at the heart of one of their their biggest arguments against leftists, which is that they will always throw out that we're just jealous of rich people, that we just are mad that we don't make enough money or don't have enough stuff. And it's like no one on the left that I've ever talked to wants more stuff or more money or wants more ill-gotten gains of capitalism. They want that all to end. Even if it makes their own life personally worse, they would be happier to see more wealth redistribution and more equality worldwide. But that's what libertarians want. Libertarians are mad that they're not at the top of the system. So they pretend they want to tear down the system, but they don't. They want to reinforce it with whatever AR-15s and other methods that they may have in mind, but they just want to be at the top of it. Go ahead, Jaren. Um, I just have to like stand my boy David Graber here again, because like the thing is, the system itself is what is destroying the planet and destroying people. Like the idea that you have to give up you know, something like a vacation or the ability to travel across the world and see things or even a nice house or a nice car, all of those things are, that's a false equivalency. Like most leftists that I know, we're not looking for something that is devoid of, you know, joy or experience. It's just that these things can be obtained in a way that is not as detrimental to everybody. And I think that this is one of those things that like the right wing, especially the lib writers, you know, think like, oh, well, you know, the the airline industry pollutes too much. You guys just don't think that we should be able to fly around and take a vacation. It's like, no, motherfucker. We've had technology to make this better forever. And we should make it better. And the best way to make it better is not let airline companies lobby the fucking government. And if your solution is to get rid of the fucking government, good fucking luck. I don't know what planet you're on. Like, even if your theory is somehow sound and somehow correct, that if there were no government, things would operate better. Good luck taking down every single world government. (laughs) You're a moron. And there's like literally all you're doing is just jerking off at this point. You're fantasizing about something that won't happen, just like you probably never getting laid and imagining (laughs) that this is something that's feasible. We're trying to work within the constraints of how the world functions. So random date here, and I'm not sure if this date will uh, ring any bells, but so the year is 1776. And, and, and we decide that we want to have a more, you know, open market, free market type of civilization. More so, perfect union, maybe? Yeah, exactly. So we decide to push out the old <laughs> controlling government that was doing this thing that we're saying that the current government is doing. So all of the, you know, greatest minds of the aristocratic civilization got together and drafted a bunch of bourgeois documents and said, look, now we're free from that government. And problem is, we gave, we gave you a constitution that is not an actual democracy. It's a democracy of the fucking bourgeoisie. It's quote unquote a republic, even though that's a fucking theory that can't even exist because someone has to write the law, enforce the law, amend it, etc. So we've done exactly what they describe. We've done away with the government and tried to redo it our own way with a with a free market in mind and what happens is the market installs the new government our government right now is pieced together by the corporations this is as free market libertarian as it gets we are living in ultra libertarian 
uh, existence where the actual market has even built its own government as a protection from the people so that when things go wrong, they point their fingers towards the uh, government. If we were to do it over again, they'd do the same fucking thing. We'd go through a couple decades with just the corporations ruling until they realize they're starting to catch a lot of flack and they'll say, hey, let's just set up this third-party system that's completely a fucking <laughs> puppet government and let them take the fucking heat for all the shit, the fucking legislation that we still fucking write and hand-deliver to House representatives' desks. Sorry. Sterling with the bars. So that's only because of that that act that uh, turned the U.S. into a corporation instead of a country that Trump was going to undo back in August, oh my but, but didn't for some reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Because, like, I yeah, I don't think they actually want to get rid of the government. Because, like, if you ask Thomas Sowell, for example, like, his ideal, if you ask him how to improve the education system, for example, is to install charter schools which are basically schools funded by public money, but like privately run. And so what they want is a government that like taxes the poor and steals from the poor, and then they can use it to like privatize and like do whatever they want. So I think like, yeah, they don't actually want to get rid of the government. They've already got it. They've already got what they want. Yeah. I think that I might've mentioned this in the episode that we did last time, but it does feel like what libertarians really want is because you can kind of have a government that's, I guess, nurturing or hostile to the people who are underneath it and also just everybody in the world. And it seems as though libertarians want a kind of adversarial government pointed outwards and then like none at home. Um, Mm -hmm. It's this kind of idea that like the only way that their economics can work is this, I guess, like, constant intake of the wealth of the imperialized world and so they need a government to do that i mean i guess you could have kind of privately run militias but it's so much easier to just have a government who can go into let's say chile when they're gonna nationalize and um take your like mines that you need there um and they can make sure that that does not happen because without that i think that this kind of libertarian project just doesn't work because like you can't just have a market just like creating this kind of wealth on its own. It has to come from somewhere. And so I think that they want it to come from the, I guess you could say like outer world. And again, they have to pretend like they don't want that because otherwise their like whole game that they play where they're not as bad as the other right wing people, which I guess works for liberals or something. I don't know who it works for, but (laughs) um works for Vosh. yeah <laughs> yeah it's like otherwise that just, <laughs> that just doesn't work because when you have to admit that you're basically like everybody else but i guess in a way even more callous i mean it's just not gonna work out <laughs> let's let's humor the idea of this just asinine ultra libertarian society completely free from government and regulation i mean i don't know have you guys ever uh had like a utility and at a property that was like far off from like the community where you didn't already have infrastructure running there. Have you ever got quoted for how much it costs to have like infrastructure run to a property? Sterling tried to build a Ted cabin. <laughs> no, it's, it's fucking insane. 
it's like uh, we we had one of one of my family owned some property back from my grandfather who was a, a pastor. So they've got like all this property that's just been setting, and I've got all my own opinions on that that I try not to voice publicly <laughs> because I'm already the black sheep of the family. Um, but anyway, they had a bunch of property they wanted to run. Uh, like I guess internet or some kind of lines out there. And and the quote was about $50,000 just, just to set up a few poles and run it out there so that they could start paying an internet bill because it it wasn't part of the, the community where infrastructure was already put in. And not only imagine the cost, if you did not have community infrastructure and every fucking home had to be, an individual contract with these uh, companies, how much they could charge you. But let's even say you get that figured out. Let's even say the market regulates itself and the costs come down. Imagine, and I'm sure all of us are old enough to be paying way too many fucking bills that we have to set aside like a weekend once a month just to pay our fucking bills. Imagine if you had a bill that you had to pay the fucking uh, local guy who owns the fucking street that goes into your neighborhood, that if you get behind on that, now all of a sudden you can't drive to your home from the front of your neighborhood. <laughs> like the, the fucking guy, like there's t- now 20 companies that have water plants and they're all fucking tearing roads up left and right to build their fucking competing services. No, bundling takes care of all of that, Zoe. Bundling will just fix all of that. Don't worry about it. Like bundling works so well with all the packages we have now with our providers for everything. I mean, I mean, the reality is like anybody who is still under the delusion that government and capital are antagonistic forces, that they're opposing each other, like you're fucking dumb. You are fucking dumb as fuck. And you have fallen for the exact illusion that they want you to fall for so that you stay divided and conquered under their heel. Um, yeah. but I mean, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and it just breeds so much waste. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like, for example, like Sterling was saying, now you have a company to like pave your roads and then another company benefits from demolishing those roads. Then you just have constant demolition and construction and it's like oh, nothing 100- ever gets done. Yeah. 100% for any fucking reason you could imagine. And you have no government regulation making sure that they even get the shit right. It's like, oh, well, we fucked up that overpass. So now we're charging everyone who lives within a hundred mile radius, another hundred thousand dollars a year to rebuild this fucking shit. It's, it's insane. Oh, the reason I even went off on that little mini tangent there was because of what Ethan had said earlier about how ANCAPs actually do want a government to go and steal resources from other countries because it's easier to unify behind a government to do that kind of extraction of, of resources and profit. I think that that also serves their purpose because then they can, they can always point to the government as doing those evil things and say that that wasn't the capitalists. It wasn't the businesses doing it, even though the businesses were pushing that exact action, funding it, but they had their hands in it the entire time. And then if they achieve their goal again, which like you said in the last episode, Ethan, they're closer to having than we are as leftists. Certainly if they get their goal of having Amazon completely unrestricted, well, then it will just be Amazon with a private army. It will just be Walmart with a private army going into Chile or wherever and taking all the lithium that they need. And then no one will be able to oppose it because then it will be too late because you won't have any kind of unifying force like a government to regulate them or to unify behind. How many fucking billionaire bureaucrats do you know? Like, that's literally what fucking libertarians believe. They're like, oh, the government's just stealing our money and they have all this fucking money. Like, they're just all living on these fucking high horses. Like, who are the billionaires in your head? Like, who actually has the money? All of this fucking public money 
it goes to private corporations. Everything, even the fucking military budgets, go to private corporations. I was going to say, have you guys seen those like recent Amazon ads that are like, what's the best thing you got from Amazon? And then it's like this worker who's like, I got a great job from Amazon and now oh. they're training me oh. <laughs> to move up in life and they're giving me education and it's awesome. <laughs> okay. I it's so dystopic. <laughs> I saw one of those about this guy who said that like, I can't remember if it was a family member who got sick or he got sick and he had to take out for a while and like Amazon paid him or was able to like keep him on and was able to like pay him. I, that is so not true. That's not that what they're like, going to do. That's not what they're going to do at all. I mean, I guess that they literally, and this guy said it happened in like 2017 or something. So unless he's lying, they literally must have picked out this one guy yeah. and like, and just like notice like maybe his wife had like, cancer or like whatever it wasn't and just been like we're gonna pay this one guy because like we know we, we can just like use him as our guy but that's not that's not at all what they do i don't know what they're like yeah it's just so i just can't with it it's... all right let me get back to this article because this is actually what we're gonna probably spend most of the time talking about are these uh nine myths so regarding portraying markets at self-regulating social structures the key word here is quote portrays since anyone who is serious about studying the history of capitalism knows, there is simply no such thing as self-regulating markets. At the end of the day, markets are created where they don't exist and enforced where they are resisted through various forms of economic coercion, and when this fails, through the barrel of a gun or under the shadow of a drone. It's important to keep in mind that every economy is planned by human beings and coordinated through human-made institutions. It is ultimately a matter of who is doing the planning and by what mechanisms. Regardless, the neoliberal worldview takes prominence in much of Sal's work. For a close scrutiny of what Sal believes are the nine, quote, myths about capitalism, I have decided to produce an extensive critique of his arguments found therein. Let's have a look at Sal's so-called myths. So there are nine of them here. One, capitalism makes the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. These are, these are myths, mind you. Wait, so, so he, so Sal calls out a myth? Yeah, Sal calls all nine of these things myths about capitalism that people believe, uh, I guess, who are anti-capitalists. Like, this is what he thinks that we think wrongly about capitalism. I see. Okay. So number one, capitalism makes the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Not totally not true at all, according to Sal. Two, capitalism is inherently unstable. It caused the Great Depression. Three, corp <laughs> corporations earn obscene profits at the expense of consumers and workers. Four, corporations engage in predatory pricing, misleading advertising, and other deviations from the market ideal. Five, unrestrained capitalism leads to environmental destruction. Six, mergers and acquisitions have concentrated economic and political power in fewer hands. Seven, capitalism leads to globalism, which destroys culture and exacerbates inequality. Eight, without government protection of labor unions, workers would not obtain a fair wage. And nine, capitalism allows and rewards racism and segregation. Now keep in mind, these are all, he considered these myths. Like every single one of those was 100% true. Like, was he trying to like, like low key, like tell everybody what capitalism does? <laughs> that, was, that was like pretty fulfilling that was that covered a lot of bases dude if i oh, if i copy and paste all of those <laughs> that's what I said. this makes me think he did indeed read marx or maybe had some marxist leanings because if i just copy and paste all nine of those onto a slide and put some instagram thousands of likes like every marxist <laughs> on there is going to love that because it's absolutely true go ahead Stanley. sorry so i just want to say for one that as someone who drink a shitload of milk growing up like my bones are strong as fuck like <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it 
Yeah, get it. Like growing up, and like you know, the milk milk makes your bones fucking strong or whatever. So we all had to fucking drink a gallon of milk a week because of advertisement, or else we were just going to break under our own weight. Wait, does was, milk not make your bones stronger? No, absolutely not. I mean, you get more. You <laughs> oh get, shit! You get more <laughs> calcium and vitamin D from like <laughs> the sun. <laughs> like, oh god damn it! <laughs> Oh, uh, no. Beer uh, no. makes my bones stronger. <laughs> probably, probably. I uh, I haven't actually like read the article or the book where he talks about all of these myths, but I have to assume that this is one of those things that I feel like people of all kind of political ideologies get bogged down on sometimes. Where I feel as though the way Sal probably tackles these is by like talking about the language that he's using, because um, this is really common. That like these people have these kind of myths that people believe, like oh, capitalism causes racism. But then like he will define capitalism and he will define this and he will define that in ways that obviously makes it not true. Although again, I think that a lot of people use this that that people just use really imprecise words and then end up like arguing about the language as opposed to the kind of like material conditions that like that are behind it. Just describe the DSA. And then I think it's just a way to like never let anything actually happen is you just waste all of your time kind of like arguing, which is what we're going to do now, which is why like nothing's going to happen, but it does feel like good to do at least. So, Yeah, I agree. That's pretty much what he does. And he is like a self-proclaimed, I guess, historian. And so the way he like builds his arguments, it's not through this like scientific rigor which like what does that mean but even beyond that he's kind of a historian and he kind of tends to like tell stories that suit him which is really interesting so for number one for example where he's like capitalism makes the rich richer and the poor poorer like he would look at it if i had to guess from like a historical perspective and be like i define being poor as like the civilization of the year like 500 BCE Mm. and now because of capitalism we all have so much more wealth so it's not true that like poor people are poor because we're actually we all have like electricity and water in the 21st century so we're actually not poor and you're wrong so he kind of like tells these stories in this like historical way which is very flawed in my opinion but we'll probably kind of dive more into it. No, I feel much better about not being able to get treatment if I have cancer because I have a toilet and a refrigerator. You know what I mean? Like I can, I can definitely dunk on those 1300s guys who didn't have those things. And that totally absolves, you know, the healthcare system for not being able to treat people that need it. Go ahead, Jaren. So I don't, I don't know if you're going to read the uh, author's answers to all of these myths or not. But while we're on the first one, this one is definitely some Milton Friedman-ass shit. So I'll try and keep this concise, but it's a really interesting point. So basically, Friedman, like when you say capitalism, right, generally what comes to my mind is those in control of capital are in control of society, right, which is pretty much anyone's understanding that is worth a shit. But the Milton Friedman model differentiates currency and capital. In Milton Friedman's mind, currency is what we use for goods in exchange. Capital is what smart people use to invest in some sort of item for an expected return. So what you do with your capital is what shows your meritocratic stance in society. And that's really important for people like Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell 
is they're going to say, well, what you do with your capital is going to influence whether or not you have these things that you deserve, right? But the thing is, if you have money that you are putting towards anything, if you have any sort of currency that you are paying a bill with, that you are going to the grocery store and buying food with, that you're paying an employee with, all of these things you expect to return. Just the return happens to be that you stay fucking alive. <laughs> you know, they're, they're in these like obtuse la-la land ideas of like we expect an asset return where we compound money on money on money, where the very visceral reality is every exchange that we participate in has a return. And that's something that Milton Friedman managed to disconnect people from. Even if you're buying something for recreation, that has a return. It brings you joy and hopefully makes your life a little more bearable and a little bit longer. Everything has a return. So like when I see this capitalism makes the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and he calls it a myth, like, no, that's just what it is. Capital is currency. Currency is capital. I conflate the two because they're the same fucking thing. And it can only not be the same thing in the minds of somebody that has too goddamn much of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Thomas Sowell, just like anybody who defends capitalism, has to always resort back to the textbook definition. Because capitalism works great on paper. It just doesn't actually work with human nature or in reality or in practice. You know what I mean? It just leads to millions of deaths, starvation, exploitation, wars, and murder. So I will, this next paragraph kind of explains exactly that. I find that each of Sal's claims are highly dubious at best and downright delusional, harmful, and reprehensible at worst. This nine-part critique will show that Sal is either A, a morally reprehensible charlatan practicing public relations for plutocratic devastation and apologetics for capitalism's brutality, or B, a profoundly naive and or confused individual with regards to the topics he chooses to write about. Ultimately, the reader decides, but I feel that no other sensible conclusions can be maintained in the face of the counter-arguments and evidence to which Sal's claims will here be subjected. Go ahead, um, I would also say, going back to the poor get poor and the rich get richer, I'm going to assume, because I've seen this bit of magic before, um, there's like a very specific time period in most countries in the West, although not all. I think it's about usually about 1880 to 1970, where that is true. And then before that, it's not. And after that, it's not. And also in the countries that you don't want to talk about, that's also not true. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to assume because I've definitely seen that chart before where it's like, oh, look at this. And then you're like, why is end in 1973? And like, I don't know. We just don't have any. And it's like, oh, OK, because we can definitely kind of like trace past a certain point and watch the poor not get richer, <laughs> um, yeah. at the very least, not get anything. And I think since about 2000, actually get poorer in terms of real wealth so but yeah i'm just going to assume that this is one of those kind of magic things where you just pull out this very specific time period and be like oh well this is obviously true and it's the same thing that people do where they talk about how like global poverty has gone way down since world war ii or whatever and it's almost all china but you just like never mention that mm -hmm. um it's kind of that same idea if you don't really qualify what you're talking about you just like pick places and times that like will obviously support what you want i mean then you're not really being like fair but i don't think that that's what he is after so yeah sorry really quickly to add to that too when thomas sal kind of talks about this he'll also identify like certain subpopulations that kind of suit his argument so if he i think were to talk about like capitalism makes the rich richer and the poor poorer i think he would say no, like look at immigrants, for example, 
and like immigrants coming to the United States come from like a poor background and then like get richer here. But I feel like that, first of all, that's not true. And second of all, like, obviously, if you're talking about immigrants, your sample is going to be skewed because a lot of people are undocumented in this country. And so like they are kind of wealth trajectory you never see. And they usually end up like not getting richer. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, but even on top of that, it's like, it's not true. It's certain types of immigrants who come from already like some sort of wealth and have some sort of social capital, but it's like, he'll identify these like subpopulations that suit his narratives. And they're like, Oh, look at this exception mm -hmm. because this exception exists. This whole rule you have about capitalism, making the poor, poor, like is obviously wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you only look at people with H1B tentacle visas who came from families in the global South still, but that were wealthy enough that they could afford to send their kids to school um, to become doctors and they come over here for further education and then stay here following the legal path of immigration, which is incredibly tough and pretty much carved out for people like them who already come from some kind of generational wealth and then can offer something to the economy here in the name of like being a doctor or some kind of other upper managerial class professional. Well, then, yeah, your sample size is already skewed and it's going to make it look like the American dream is still alive and well, according to these people. Um, but let's get into the myths, unless anybody else has anything, and I'll just start with um, how they debunk myth one. So myth one for Sal is that, quote, capitalism makes the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Sal opens his argument in this section by claiming, quote, capitalism allows for great inequality in incomes, but it is also profoundly egalitarian. Its institutions protect the equal rights of consumers and producers, deny privilege and authority to the powerful few, and distribute wealth based on each participant's contribution to satisfying the needs of the others. <laughs> like, again... It doesn't! It doesn't, it do, any doesn't of those things. do that! <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's take a closer look at the claims Sal makes in the quoted section. Maybe he is a Marxist. He's got to be a Marxist. <laughs> it's like, he straight up is... Uh. It's like reading that subreddit, Love for Landlords, where you're not sure if it's actually a Maoist sub and they're making... They're trying to That's make you angry <laughs> Yeah, there's two. There's, uh, there's landlord love and then there's love for landlords. And one of them is unironic and praises landlords and looks down on what they call rentoids and thinks that we're all like <laughs> leeches who live off of these nice benevolent landlords. And then the other one is a Maoist sub that is for making fun of landlords. And, <laughs> and I think the, the one that is even unironically in favor of landlords started out as a Maoist sub to make people angry at the injustices that landlords do and like just posting all the horrible things that landlords say in their own group chats so that you hate landlords more. All right, so... Sal admits, rather euphemistically, that capitalism, quote, allows for income inequalities to be great. In other words, Sal implies that at least part of the so-called myth isn't a myth at all, specifically. Capitalism does indeed ensure that the rich get richer. And honestly, who can argue with this axiom in the face of facts such as the eight richest men in the world owning as much wealth as the poorest half of humanity combined? Or that, <laughs> quote, capitalism allows for the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, to make more per second in 2020 during an economic depression and global pandemic, mind you, than the median American worker makes in a month. Even more egregiously, if we consider the Robert Barron's 2018 gains at a similar point in the year, Bezos had, quote, earned, Sal and Friedman's belief, not mine, in each and every second of that year, more than the average yearly salary of Amazon warehouse workers in India. In light of this, we should be condemning a system that produces Jeff Bezos and more expansively corporate CEOs at all, many of whom now earn on average 320 times that of their typical employees. But forget all that. Sal is as laser-focused as Reagan's Star Wars on what he believes or feigns to believe are aspects of capitalism's, quote, profoundly egalitarian character. To reiterate, Sal claims that the institutions in a capitalist society, quote, 
protect the equal rights of consumers and producers, deny privilege and authority to the powerful few, and distribute wealth based on each participant's contribution to satisfying the needs of others. But do such claims hold up against scrutiny? Legitimacy of the claim can be assessed by considering it in relation to how specific institutions under capitalism function in practice, as opposed to how they function in Sal's imagination. <laughs> in the midst of the historic and worldwide 2020 protest led by Black Lives Matter, following the despicable murder of George Floyd, still raging at the time of this writing, with untold masses clashing daily with violent and unaccountable state forces, a pertinent starting point is the critical examination of the state itself with an emphasis on crime control under capitalism and its various structures, police, prisons, laws, courts, etc. We must look at the roles they played historically in addition to how they function in the present day. The very notions of criminalization and, quote, law must be subjected to scrutiny. Who or what determines what is criminal and what is not? And why is the criminalization and overcriminalization of certain actions and the under or non-criminalization of other actions maintained and enforced? What laws are actually enforced and to whom do they actually apply? Jeff Bezos had 600 unpaid parking tickets while he was building his mansion in D.C. If the penalty is payment, then the law doesn't apply to the rich. Yep. We should, uh, we should do an episode on systemic racism also. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, how it's intertwined and actually a part of capitalism. Um, they should have made Jeff Bezos clean up the fucking freeway. I bet he wouldn't have parked like a dick then. With a toothbrush. <laughs> so they go on. For example, grossly irresponsible, speculative, parasitic, and fraudulent behaviors by Wall Street executives, which collapse entire economies and put millions into a state of poverty and destitution, are obscenely undercriminalized, despite the massive social harm resulting from such behaviors. While marijuana possession is wildly overcriminalized, despite the relatively minor social harms marijuana causes. Selective criminalization such as this is endemic to capitalist societies both past and present and must be subjected to critical analysis. They say, we'll start at the beginning and drag the dead weight of Sal's delusions through centuries of capitalism's history in hopes of entering the present-day analysis free of Sowellian stupor. Sorry, still again. <laughs> I mean, I was saying we got to do an episode on it, but he just opened the door, and I feel like we have to step in now. I mean, we, we, I have, mean, we have to describe exactly what he's saying just in more detail, unless, you, unless it continues a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the next couple pages get into the application of law under capitalism. Yeah, and do, goes, do that, and then let's circle and chew on that for a bit. All right, cool. Uh, despite having written a book on Karl Marx and what he refers to as Marxism, Sal apparently failed to absorb, or rather conveniently neglects, Marx's and Engels' rather important insights related to this very issue. This is all the more concerning, considering that Sal shows a remarkable ability for a neoclassical economist to explain basic Marxian concepts accurately. Which leads me to wonder if Sal isn't simply providing us with a case study of Upton Sinclair's famous maxim, quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Marx's initial interest in the economic and social questions that would consume him for the rest of his life were substantially rooted in his concern over the function of law and the constitution of crime in his day. In the 1859 preface to Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, Marx wrote, quote, in the year 1842 to 43, as editor of the Rheinische Zeitung, I first found myself in the embarrassing position of having to discuss what is known as material interests. The deliberations of the Rhine Province Assembly in thefts of wood and the division of landed property, and finally the debates on free trade and protective tariffs, caused me in the first instance to turn my attention to economic questions. It was at least in part Marx's early recognition of, quote, legal injustices and state repression that led him to be a lifelong critic of ruling social orders and to write, in Robert Tucker's words, as though his pen were dipped in molten anger. And then they get into the section, Capitalism's Beginnings. From capitalism's very beginnings under the weight of feudal society, throughout the process of establishing the prerequisites for capitalist production and accumulation and continuing to the present day, a 
critical analysis of crime control and capitalist regimes of criminalization is rather enlightening. As Friedrich Engels wrote, the law is sacred to the bourgeois, for it is his own composition, enacted with his consent, and for his own benefit and protection. He knows that even if an individual law should injure him, the whole fabric protects his interests, and more than all, the sanctity of the law, the sacredness of order as established by the active will of one part of society, and the passive acceptance of the other, is the strongest support of his social position. Because the English bourgeois finds himself reproduced in his law, as he does in his god, the policeman's truncheon, which in a certain measure is his own club, has for him a wonderfully soothing power. But for the working man, quite otherwise. The working man knows too well, has learned from too oft-repeated experience, that the law is a rod which the bourgeois has prepared for him. And when he is not compelled to do so, he never appeals to the law. From its early formations to its modern enforcement, state power and crime control in the interests of capital and refined by bourgeois social orders function in reality precisely the opposite from the manner which Sal imagines. Bourgeois criminalization, far from protecting equal rights and denying a privilege and authority, actually destroys rights for most and guarantees immense, quote, privilege and authority for, quote, the powerful few. As will be shown, the fundamental features of bourgeois social orders were crucial to establishing capitalism as a system of socioeconomic organization and remain equally as crucial to the continuation of capitalism in the current era. So yeah, it's a pretty good description of exactly the phenomenon you and Jaron are both talking about, Sterling. Go ahead, Nina. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. And I feel like the veil that Thomas Sowell uses to kind of justify this like differential in how like the law gets applied to poor people versus the bourgeois is this kind of like cultural determinism, but like. Sorry, you broke up a little bit. Yeah, she's... Sorry, where did I, where did I cut out? Um, when you said cultural determinism as opposed to genetic determinism. Yeah, which I guess he like phrases in like less, um, I guess, problematic terms. But for if you asked him, for example, like why the incarceration rate for African-Americans is so high, he would be like, oh, they're just like more criminal. (laughs) They just like engage in more criminal behavior. It's totally natural. And then he would kind of blame that on like some aspects of kind of black culture, like growing up in a one parent household or like being lazy and like not being focused on like education and stuff like that. And so I don't know, it's this like, yeah, it's this kind of cultural determinism that he uses to justify a lot of other things and justify a lot of other inequalities, which is really fucked up. Which is itself a value judgment. Like, let's be clear. Like if you are going to make the case that people of color are incarcerated more, or they just have not as good of results in capitalism as the people who have traditionally been at the top, like you're still making a value judgment and saying that that culture is worth less, that that is like not as valuable to society. And therefore it's right that these people should have these terrible results that are coming to them. So you're still making a racist argument just because you've couched in the language that is comfortable for neoliberalism doesn't actually make it any better. So I, I literally just finished doing research for you know, my chapter on fuck the police for my new book. But uh, I think that this fits in really well because how the police came about fits into this story really well. And a lot of people don't really think about it because they just always assume that societies have had police, right? Mm -hmm. And nothing could be further from the truth. The current incarnation of police has been around for like literally only a hundred years. That's it. And prior to that, in the feudal and monarchic societies of the world, the police were guards that protected private estates, private properties. Yeah, so it's um, been around basically. for a while. You're contradicting yourself. 
<laughs> well, it's been around for a while, but here's the thing, is the police insofar as like the government hiring a force to quote, protect the people, that was 1920. That was the Wickersham Commission. Prior to that, prior to 1920, they were still just privately hired to protect people's fucking property. Mm-hmm. And guess who decided to start the Wickersham Commission? A coalition of aristocrats. So they shifted it in name, but they never shifted it in how it actually works. And as far as ANCAPs are concerned, that wouldn't change any of the foundational basis for this. The only thing that came close to changing the police at all was communism. And even as an anarchist, I'll admit that. But like, in general, that's all they do. They protect property rights. Nothing has changed with that. And, you know, this manifest equality and egalitarianism that Sowell describes, like, the law is not even on your side, dude. Like, how are you supposed to deal with that? There was another case that I had to research for this, and then I'll shut up, but like, it it was crazy. So two dudes were arrested within two years. Both of them were 50 years old. One was black, one was white. One committed white collar crime to the tune of $2 billion, tanked his equity firm, screwed the stockholders, and got like, I think, six months in white collar prison. The black dude from Shreveport, Louisiana, robbed a bank, asked only for a $100 bill because he couldn't get into his like treatment center or whatever, and then ended up returning the $100 bill, said, quote, my mom didn't teach me that way. I think his name was Roy Brown. And they locked him up for 15 years, no parole. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Now, my question is, Roy Brown committed a, quote, violent crime, right? And the other guy committed a nonviolent crime. That's why he got lesser sentencing. But what if the guy that screwed his employees, equity firm, stockholders, and mortgagees ended up putting somebody in Roy Brown's shoes, and then they ended up committing a, quote, violent crime? Why the fuck was the catalyst not the violent crime? I could not agree anymore, and I'd love if we actually had time to jump into, like, uh, different countries that have tried police forces, quote unquote, in different ways, you know, like the USSR and the anarchists run Ukraine during the time of the black army. But let's just focus on, on our country for now. And I want to talk about a few things as far, because it it seems like now we should jump into exactly what systemic racism is, how it's built and how it actually operates in this country. And like with the first point you were saying with, okay, well, statistics show more black men are locked up per capita than white men. That statistic alone should not be a eye opener that fucking this race of people are inherently more criminal than another. It should be eye opening to something's going fucking wrong with our police force because no, one race is clearly not more criminalistic than the other. So if your statistics are showing one per capita is arrested far more than the other, you're probably fucking up somewhere. That should be the antithesis of your fucking argument. But I do want to kind of dive into exactly how this works. So obviously the black communities have had a much later start in our country to try to develop themselves economically than the white classes. And I mean, more accurately ruling class. Um, I do think that our systemic racism is really designed to attack the impoverished, not specifically the black. It just actually turns out to be very effective at hitting the black impoverished more. And for a few of these reasons, one, they've started at a much later starting point than we have. And after just generations of gatekeeping into colleges and workplaces and anything else to improve their conditions of living, 
they are still, even though they've started so much later, they're still running a much further race than white people are running. And on average, they're paid far less on the dollar than white employees are. And so that keeps pushing distance between them. Like they're running a losing race. And when you've had generations of this type of gatekeeping, both in your workplace and your education, you're growing up in these communities that are extremely impoverished. I mean, obviously not all black people do, but a lot of them do grow up in these extremely impoverished communities. And when we choose to target certain laws target specifically the impoverished communities, what we're doing is writing law that targets black people because we have put them in these communities. We have forced them just into these impoverished conditions. We refuse to allow them to pick themselves up out of it. And we write laws that were literally over something like what Jaron was describing, like someone who is just exploiting and ruining lives of countless people Instead, we feel it's more important to throw someone in jail who was just on the corner smoking a joint, just sitting at a fucking family barbecue. We shove cops into these communities that we know are more impoverished and more susceptible to these specific crimes because crime is a byproduct of poverty, not of race. But if you've developed a system that specifically targets the impoverished and you've created generational gatekeeping that pushes more black people into these impoverished communities than white people, then again, you've effectively wrote laws that target black people. That's the exact material outcome of it. So we shove all our our police forces into black communities. You don't sit around a white neighborhood and see cops rolling down the street just to catch someone with a fucking little bit of weed in their pocket. And as soon as we throw them into these prisons, they've completely been cut off from the employment sector. I mean, they're almost doomed to then have to sell drugs because we've developed this employment system that, yeah, that's, that's kind of the overall of my point is, We throw them in communities where they're impoverished. We target our police force to arrest people for these minor offenses that are extremely nonviolent on the majority level. And not only are they starting late, not only are they getting paid less and, and running this losing battle, but you've now created a system which keeps them from being able to join the race. Because once you're arrested, you're a repeat offender. You're basically at that point, all you are is prison labor. And the prison industrial complex is huge. Like people don't understand how real this fucking terrible system is that has just taken advantage of the black people. And that's because if we were to do this in a white community and just jump police forces into white communities and start arresting people and we started throwing all of them into the prison industrial complex to make fucking Walmart employee t-shirts for 27 cents an hour... It'd be all over the fucking news. The reason it works with the black community is because we as a country have grown deaf to their plight. We have accepted that that's how it is. And we believe these stupid, and we really don't believe them. We've convinced ourselves that we believe these stupid things like, oh, they're just more criminal active. And eventually they're going to grow out of this. And it it just, it blows my mind. I just wanted to kind of give that little overview of what, what I see systemic racism as. Sterling slavery ended in 1865 and racism was outlawed <laughs> in 1965. So they should just get over it. And if they haven't gotten over it by now, it must be something wrong with their culture, obviously. But like, that's, I mean, that is literally the arguments. And I'd like to hear everybody take a turn if they want 
at like what you say back to that, because I'm sure if you've been arguing with people online that you've heard some idiot liberal even say that, you know, these communities should just lift themselves up by the bootstraps, yada, yada, yada. They should stop committing crime and they should stop relying on history. And again, if you bring up any aspects of systemic racism, then because it's not enshrined into law, because it's something that's like shadowy, like redlining or the redistricting that goes on, if it's something that you can't concretely point to as actual racism written in black and white, because they can always weasel out of it that way. That's usually what you get in response is like, oh, it's not actually just racism. It's a problem with the, the culture or whatever. And that's what I was trying to get at when I was saying it's a value judgment still, because you were still admitting that you were writing off an entire culture as being not valuable and therefore they should make less money and they should be in worse communities and they should be locked up at exorbitant rates um, for the population. And again, it just goes back to what you consider a criminal activity and what you don't. And what we consider criminal activity in this country is property crimes as opposed to crimes against workers. But go ahead. Yeah, I think that the answer that Sal would probably give is that um, that's not capitalism, that's the government. Because isn't that kind of always the answer mm-hmm. that like I think libertarians really pride themselves in like acknowledging systemic issues but that system is just the government as opposed to like capitalism. Mm-hmm. So I think that while Saul would probably say, like you had mentioned, or I guess that that was a direct quote that um, capitalism like has the potential to do these things that it's actually the government that's the main problem. And if we just get rid of the government, then clearly all of these issues will just like go away. And I, I mean, we, Definitely talked about this in the first two parts, but I just think it's so naive to even believe that you can get rid of one without getting rid of the other. Um, Yeah. Yeah. To respond to what Mike was saying, the thing is too, that like, yeah, slavery was outlawed in the 1800s, but like the war on drugs, which, which um, happened in like the 1980s and is still kind of going on that was also in writing, you know, like everybody knows about it. Um, and that was like directly targeted at the black community too. So like, you don't even have to like search for (laughs) search like deeply for like proof that like these kind of systemic like attacks against like the black community and the poor community are still in place. But another kind of outrageous thing that Thomas Owl has said is that um, America has not actually profited from slavery because America, (laughs) America after slavery has more wealth than it did during slavery. And so it wasn't. What? (laughs) Yeah. This is the guy that said that you get returns on investments. Yeah, sorry. What the fuck? (laughs) By the way, my house is not actually benefiting from the foundation because that was all built first, and then the rest of the house is way bigger and more ornate than the foundation, and has nothing to do with that. And first of all, your property goes up in value every year, and you built that foundation way in the past. Yeah. I also just found out this past week from another podcast that apparently the reason freed slaves were given 40 acres and a mule is because mules don't reproduce. And if they had given them um, a donkey or the, the other animal that a mule comes from, that would reproduce, then they, that would have been something they could create wealth off of. They could like breed them and create more. So they purposely gave them a sterile animal so they couldn't create more and just started them off, like handicapping them right off the bat. That's fucked up. Yeah, dude. I've never yeah. heard of that. Uh, let me see. 
since we spent an inordinate amount of time on the first myth, let's see if we can get into uh, <laughs> some of the other ones, like capitalism being inherently unstable. Yeah, that one's also kind of interesting to me because, again, I feel like Sowell has this very fun way of just ignoring big, like, historical events like the Great Depression. It's just something he doesn't talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So obviously capitalism is stable if you don't even think about the Great Depression because he'll be like, oh yeah, during the 1920s, like yeah, under Coolidge and the Republican presidents, unemployment rate was only like 4%, but then Roosevelt shows up and unemployment rate jumps to 20% and he had socialist policies. And it's like, there was a whole Great Depression in there. <laughs> That was caused by <laughs> socialism is when Keynesian economics. Yeah. And it's like, of course, capitalism is stable if you just like ignore, <laughs> ignore the like economic downturns that it causes. <laughs> what, a, what a fun story. If, if only there was a historical country that had 0% unemployment rate that we could, you know, base our theories off of. <laughs> If only in the 1930s, some specific mythical country completely did away with unemployment benefits because there was no (laughs) longer unemployment. Well, I mean, I think that the reason capitalists wouldn't turn to that is because they they literally define the economy as like having unemployment as like a built in idea. They're supposed they call it like the natural rate. They're supposed to be people who are like unemployed and i think that they that they like to say like oh those people are just in between jobs or they're just they're just or they're just that but i mean i think a lot of those people are clearly unemployed for like reasons that are not their own <laughs> um but you know that's just like natural that's what's supposed to happen in an economy in fact so as capitalism entered the 20th century the themes of selective criminalization colonial pillage violent worker discipline bureaucratic corruption growing inequality, and unjust deserts continued unabated. The early 20th century in particular was marked by worker resistance to the ruling capitalist social order. Well, it is estimated that as many as 57,000 strikes occurred between 1889 and 1915, with perhaps 10 million workers involved by 1905. Surprising only those who are out of touch, it was primarily state forces, especially the newly constructed municipal police, most responsible for cracking skulls, murdering, and imprisoning those fighting for their rights and dignity as workers. Harrowing details why municipal police were much more effective than national guards, militias, or private strike breakers at maintaining control. Quote, the municipal police were publicly financed and hence much cheaper to use. They could be well-trained and disciplined. They had practical experience in day-to-day monitoring of working-class communities. And most important, the police were cloaked in the legitimacy of law and order. Under the newly formed municipal police regimes, selective criminalization ran roughshod over the bodies and livelihoods of the laboring masses. Police harassed and arrested working class and poor populations in the urban centers and around the country. In Chicago, an offense known simply as disorderly was used to arrest and fine workers, especially immigrants and males. Between 1901 and 1908, the Chicago police arrested 324,000 workers for the offense of disorderly alone. In Milwaukee, the situation was much the same. In 1900, a typical year, drunkenness and disorderly conduct together accounted for about 60% of all arrests while assault and battery, vagrancy, and miscellaneous arrests accounted for another 1,300 arrests, together more than 80% of the total. We know from occupational statistics that virtually all of those arrests were workers, mostly laborers. It goes without saying that wealthy neighborhoods were scarcely, if ever, subjected to constant police harassment. The class as well as racial bias of policing in the United States and Europe was apparent from the beginning and, in fact, was built into the very foundations of policing. The history of the police providing social control for capitalist interests is so consistent and fully observable throughout history 
that it is rather astonishing how many people today falsely believe that the police are simply a force for good meant only, quote, to serve and protect. Nothing could be further from the truth. At this point, it is important to have a proper understanding of imperialism, and more specifically, capitalist imperialism. In this endeavor, scholar Zach Cope is helpful. Cope defines imperialism as, quote, the systematic, unrequited transfer of resources from foreign territories. It follows that imperialism has been around much longer than capitalism. However, capitalist imperialism is an imperialism in which, quote, capitalist imperatives constitute the driving force behind imperialism. Cope notes that the function of capitalist imperialism is, quote, to bolster the accumulation of capital, that is, the advance of money for the express purpose of purchasing inputs to produce outputs, which are then sold for more money. And that is this capitalist imperialism, which in many ways defined the 20th century. Vladimir Lenin, in his work Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism, expounded the theory of a new stage of capitalist development in which massive monopolies came to dominate the planet, its population, and resources with industrial capital and financial capital joining together to form financial oligarchies. What a batshit theory. I mean, who could have right? imagined something so outlandish? That all sounds like bullshit. Um, it is at this point that capital export abroad gains a central role in the process of capital accumulation. As Cope describes it, quote, the coincidence of oligopolistic industry with financial capital guaranteed the global ascendance of the core nations. The advanced imperialist states began to invest in dependent and semi-feudal countries so that clientelist bourgeoisies there could manufacture using inexpensive land and labor, generating wealth which could be transferred back to the imperialist nation either wholesale in the form of undervalued commodities or in the form of repatriated profits. I mean, to me, the, the permutation of using the police as a public utility is mirrored in the same timeline by the public becoming not so okay with imperialism. So we had to figure out other ways to do imperialism, be that neoliberal trade or invading a country and saying that we're freeing them. You know, the classic golden age of imperialism of like, yes, we're in this country to maintain control over them and take their shit, which was okay throughout the 1800s changed around the same time that we decided to say, well, the police should be a public utility for the protection of the people, where both of these things, domestic and foreign, have still maintained the same modus operandi, which is to serve the prevailing elite. And the funny thing about it to me, especially when we're talking about libertarians, and if, if you look at Liberty Hangout, like the Twitter fucking insane person, oh, no. he's, he's a full-on monarchist now. And to yeah. me, that's no coincidence is because they're far closer to being monarchists than they realize, because that is what capitalism is. Instead of being ordained by God, you're ordained by the idea you put into the marketplace or ordained by some altruistic messianic bullshit that you just worked hard enough to that every second of your time is worth $20,000 or whatever. It still has this removed esotericism, the same kind that functioned behind feudalism and monarchy, just reframed through, honestly, a puritanical lens. Puritanical Christianity was able to take that vice and just inject it into a 20th century ideal. It's no coincidence to me that war, leasing, and remnants of feudalism and monarchy all changed at the same time, but maintained the same power. One of the coolest things that... Um that Brett from Red Love said on one of his episodes recently was that um, if you push a libertarian down the stairs, they'll become a fascist by the time they reach the bottom. And it's, it's so incredibly true because as soon as you subject any kind of, any of their ideology to any kind of uh, stress whatsoever, as soon as capitalism encounters any kind of crisis, 
the first thing that comes out is the militants, is the the violence that's inherent in it. Um, sounding like Monty Python, but it's it's very true. Like as soon as there's any kind of crisis, that's when the fascism comes out. That's when you start blaming minorities. When you start blaming any kind of marginalized people, because you can't actually attack the system because you don't have a critique of capitalism. Correct. This is um, a little bit off topic, but do you think that those people who claim to be like monarchists are just so like irony poisoned that they're almost like removed from their own beliefs? Yes. Um, Such a or, or like, are, are there are there like actual like do they actually believe in a monarchy? Yeah, it's a, it's like <laughs> my my brother who's fairly libertarian. He he believes that there should not be a minimum wage. But then also the next breath, he'll complain because he's in like mostly does, you know, trade work. And then in the next breath, he'll complain about uh, immigrants, Mexicans coming illegally and working for like pennies on the dollar for what he charges for that. And now he can't get work. And I'm like, okay, which one is it? Should there be a minimum wage or is the problem that some employees are coming over here and working outside of the minimum wage and now you can't keep up? I'm like, the, the irony is completely deaf on their ears. Oh, so just a little more on imperialism here. So Pan-African scholar and activist Walter Rodney explains, quote, imperialism is itself a phase of capitalist development in which Western European capitalist countries, the USA and Japan, established political, economic, military, and cultural hegemony over other parts of the world, which were initially at a lower level and therefore could not resist domination. Imperialism was in effect the extended capitalist system, which for many years embraced the whole world, one part being the exploiters, the core, and the other, the exploited, periphery. As could be expected, competitive rivalries between nations and multinational, later transnational corporations began to intensify. With the breakdown of British world domination in the late 19th century and addition of newcomers to the imperialist competition for control of resources and markets such as the United States, Germany, Japan, etc., it was only a matter of time before major conflict broke out. Capitalist imperialism in the 20th century is inseparable from the horrendous wars which shook the period as these were overwhelmingly wars for control over the global capitalist economy as the major powers required access to cheap resources and new markets. Perhaps understandably, the 20th century, a century in which capitalism would come to dominate the planet, was a war zone. As Eric Hobsbawm wrote, quote, the short 20th century was marked by war. It lived and thought in terms of world war, even when the guns were silent and the bombs were not exploding. Smedley D. Butler, who at the time of his death was the most decorated Marine in U.S. history, was no stranger to capitalism. <laughs> I mean, Smedley Butler is great. A total fucking badass. Fucking shit, dude, yeah. In a speech given in 1933, Butler recalled, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of the Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that the standard oil went its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I feel that I could have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do <laughs> was operate in his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. Fucking epic. Yeah, God dude. He goes on. He goes, they have always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. As strange as it certainly appears, 
No war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here, let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. You just got to get rid of government. That's the problem. And that was actually, sorry, that last part was actually a quote from Eugene Debs. I bet. But go ahead, Sterling. I was just going to say, for some of our listeners who may not know who Smedley Butler is, uh, he wrote Wars of Racket. Because if someone did not know that and doesn't know anything about Wars of Racket, and we just went on talking about how base this guy is for, like, overthrowing democratic third world countries, yeah. they, they may be a bit confused. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Good point, sir. Um, kind of want to start wrapping it up because we're getting to about the time. I feel like we haven't really like nailed Sal enough. <laughs> we spent so much time just critiquing capitalism in general. We didn't really shit on Sal enough. Yeah. I mean, again, I just, I don't think that you get anywhere trying to fight these people on their grounds. The kind of like, well, by your logic, this blah, blah. I just don't think that goes anywhere because I don't, I don't think that they have internal logic. And, and I think that that's like very purposeful mm-hmm. that if, Sowell gets to define all the terms that he's using and define the terms. I mean, I, I get that like this paper that we're talking about by ruthless communists, whatever, 1871. <laughs> um, like, I think that it's useful as a kind of educational tool for people who are interested, but like any libertarian who reads this just can fall back to this iron wall thing of like, well, that's not what capitalism is. And in fact, all of those problems are because the government is way too involved in like these people's lives, blah, 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 blah. I mean, this is just a question. I don't think that we talk about it much on our podcast just because it's not really in our purview, but I've talked about it with Nino like one-on-one before this idea of how you get people to like change their beliefs, I think is very complicated. Um, And I just think that when it comes to like libertarians who obviously have this crazy belief that basically like relies on more axiomatic ideas than it does actual like truths. I don't think that you're going to convince those people that they're wrong just because reality doesn't agree with them because I don't think that they're interested in reality. And so clearly when Sowell just has all these ideas about like myths that people believe and then just doesn't really come up with the reasons why they're wrong, it seems he just kind of talks about why by his definition none of these things are true like i don't think that you're going to convince him i mean he's 91 so you wouldn't anyway but i don't think that you're convinced let's say candace owens that like he's wrong because this isn't true and this isn't true i just don't think that that works that's kind of my take on it definitely not i will say like as much as it may seem and we kind of are giving people like our listeners talking points for how to counteract things that people believe just intrinsically about capitalism when they say things like you know, the free market works or capitalism lifted the most people out of poverty. All of these people rely, whether they realize it or not, again, because it goes back to the thing that was in the intro about Thomas Sal himself, whether he's a charlatan and he knows that all this shit is false, or if he actually is just naive and believes this stuff genuinely. And we can't really know because we can't get inside the guy's head, but you are always going to encounter people who, again, either just believe the propaganda genuinely, and you're never going to convince them because the amount of time it would take isn't worth it. Or they're just charlatans. Again, like they don't even believe it themselves, but they know that it sounds good. They know that it convinces enough people. So they spew the rhetoric obediently. But I would say like 
if people try to debate you on this shit, like you should just move past that point and you should just say like, look, I already know that you're going to cite far right rhetoric and anti-communist sources as to why socialism can't work. I know you're going to cite government propaganda, ironically, when you say that big government is communism and it killed billions every time. And you're going to cite that as like the reasons why it hasn't worked or shouldn't or couldn't work in the future. You know, you're going to ask, like, how would a communist society give me this or how would this work in a communist society? And you don't actually want the answers to this question because you're not actually trying to learn. You're not actually trying to understand an alternative to the political economy that we live in. You're just trying to derail the conversation. You're just trying to defend the status quo. You're just trying to sow doubt. And so I would say, like, once you come to that realization, I could understand Ethan, like your, your tact where you were talking about how to best convince people, like how do you actually change people's minds? And I would say it's respectable. I can see where it's coming from, but I feel like that's just the lib in you who hasn't come to the realization <laughs> that it's, it's re-education camps. Like that's the only thing we can do. Like you have to at a certain point Mike, realize that. Mike, you can't just start calling our guests libs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be funny here, but it was a it was a long winded way to get around to it. It was supposed to be a joke. Well, I mean, maybe I don't necessarily disagree with that, but like, you need enough people to like to have enough workers to actually fill those like re-education yeah. camps. So, like, how do we get there? You yeah. know, yeah, no, and that's and that's where the turn leftist podcast comes in. That's where we get people who are libs and like burgeoning leftists, and we get them on board with re-education camp, and then we create the army from there. Get them in, you, you, you like have to get them in there. You have to get them working, and then from there, you get a camp. You a get snowball. a camp. <laughs> yeah, just to kind of piggyback on what Ethan's saying, I, I think he makes a good point with trying to break down these theories of these incredibly dense and wrong people. Is that his points were not even points. I mean, he literally was describing exactly what is happening and saying, well, at least this isn't happening. And then he describes exactly <laughs> what's happening. It's like, how do you debate that? You can't debate it. And there's a reason. It's because he's like been paid by, it looks like, countless fucking think tanks. And that's what they do. It, it reminds me of the fucking Rick and Morty episode where Jerry gets fucking taken up to Pluto and they keep throwing him up on yeah. stage and they're like, say it again, Jerry. And he walks up to the mic and says, Pluto's a real planet. The fucking crowd, <laughs> fucking crowd goes crazy. And it's that same thing. These think tanks take these specific decorated people that they believe go against the grain from what the public expects people of these views to look like or what uh, communities they're from. And they dump money into them and they platform the fuck out of them. And then they start just getting these insurmountable amounts of money. Do you really think they'd ever change their view? I mean, capitalism is really fucking working for them. They get up and say a bunch of shit and no matter how wrong they are, they collect tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. Like you yep. can't, how do you prove to this person who's doing the damn thing? They're wrong. And it's like, that's why you, you can't argue with Ben Shapiro. He makes too much fucking money. What am I going to do to this motherfucker? Who's like living it up? Like really, I'm going to break it down to him as to why all these things he has are actually bad. Like, no, nah. here's why you should throw your career away. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that circles back to something we say all the time, which is the best way to debate these motherfuckers is to turn around and walk the fuck away. Yeah. Would you have Jaron? All right. I'm going to try to keep this concise, but like this is triggering, but it is a direct shot at Sowell. So it's pertinent to the episode. And it also explains why I fucking hate hippies. Um, 
<laughs> so <laughs> fucking hippies. This is this is right along with what Sterling's saying. I'm going to read you a quote. Okay, this is from Thomas Sowell. No one is equal to anything. Even the same man is not equal to himself on different days. Jesus. Okay, Christ. so we have a an economist, a political commentator, saying this vague galaxy ass bullshit uh, that has absolutely no basis in economics or politics maybe philosophy but <laughs> fuck that but you're gonna have all of these wide-eyed 60s acid-strung hippies going like damn that's deep but really what it is is him taking a shot at things like social programs like you're not equal to anybody so you don't deserve water or fair pay or food because in the next breath, he's going to shit all over social programs and poor people. But in this particular quote, he says something that's going to get all of the liberals who like to think about the stars and astronomy and shit <laughs> wet. And then they're in the pipeline. Like, they do this shit. Here's another one. This is from Jordan Peterson. Yay. Now, Jaron, it makes perfect sense. Like Heraclitus said, you never step in the same river twice, so therefore we don't deserve universal health care. It makes perfect right. sense. It's a total right. through it, line. It starts with <laughs> esoteric, vague bullshit that catches all the people who are actually okay with capitalism, but they just want to feel edgy, and they don't actually have a culture because they were raised in America, so they like to, you know, appropriate something, maybe a headdress or some hot <laughs> yoga or Dream something. Dream catcher. But anyway, I told you a I neighborhood. hate these people. <laughs> This is Jordan Peterson. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Don't be politically active unless you put your dishes away as soon as they're done. Or, what? this is actually from him, we complain about the national deficit while ignoring the $30,000 in credit card debt we've racked up with frivolous spending. I don't know, motherfucker. Maybe I have so much credit card debt because the system's fucked that I don't get paid a normal wage. But in the next breath, he's going to say something completely ignorant. But by that point, you have all the yogis who are right-wing curious anyway in the fucking chamber. You think this guy's never borrowed? Like, he doesn't have a mortgage, everything paid cash? <laughs> I know that was, like, a huge tangent, but, like, this is why Sowell is just such a piece of fucking shit. Like, I've seen this quote floating around on Boomer Facebook and shit before. I've literally <laughs> seen people post it non-ironically. You could just say Facebook. Like, dude, I know I'm not equal to myself every day. I get hung over. I do dumb shit. Like, that has nothing to do with the fact that climate change is going to kill us all. <laughs> Wait, I would really love to meet the person who is like $30,000 in debt, but who also cares about the deficit? I've never met a person who's like, oh, we can't bring up the deficit too much when they're like working to like make ends meet that would be a crazy person who i would love to meet and you should get on the podcast also, if, you're also if i have no debt do i now get to criticize the national deficit and then you take me seriously now because i have a feeling that's still not the case like i could still criticize it and they're still going to write off my arguments for some other reason no you, there's some other means test that has to come up i don't know you need to invent something to kind of summarize thomas sowell he fits this profile we've described perfectly because. So I read his book, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, which was a fucking agony I don't recommend. And he is interested in the question of like, why are some nations poor and why some are wealthy? And he spends 
three chapters just talking about river systems in different countries which like why isn't an economist talking about rivers he's literally like oh in egypt there's a nile and this river is very good because it has like regular flooding <laughs> patterns and then over in like bangladesh the rivers flood too much and so therefore we deserve to steal all <laughs> we deserve to steal all their food <laughs> like, yeah. hell yeah <laughs> Hell yeah. That makes it's, sense. Their rivers like flood so too crazy. much. Send in the troops. <laughs> <laughs> Columbus, Ohio, uh, wealthiest city in the country, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just like he goes on these like crazy like tangents to explain like wealth differences when it's like there's such an easy solution, you know, which is material differences between like countries that, you know, has been caused by capitalism, imperialism, whatever you want to call it. But again, it's kind of just the story that he creates to like fit his worldview. And obviously like Sterling was seeing, he's been able to benefit like crazy from it because he's been accepted into like the top institutions and is acclaimed as like this intellectual thinker and like writer and economist when like none of his work has any basis in economics. Like he just talks about rivers for a hundred pages. <laughs> a couple things. One debt is literally this made up concept that the capitalist invented. Like it was literally at a certain point, they're like, fuck, we can't exploit these motherfuckers anymore. Cause we've taken all of their money. Like they can't even eat. And then some fucking asshole is like, Hey, I got an idea. What if we take their money before they even have their money? Like we, we didn't come up, we didn't come up with that shit. Like what the fuck? And it's like, I'm picturing this like Jordan Peterson about to walk up on a podium but that morning he had just accidentally taken out a loan to buy like a yacht or some shit. And he just gets up there. He's like, sorry guys, I got like 60,000 in debt now. So I really, uh, I'm really, I'm really not credited to speak here. So I'm going to have to cancel this fucking speaking. Let me wait till I'm debt free. <laughs> all right, let's wrap it up there. I'll say one last thing. Like you guys kind of all hinted at various points at this kind of distinction as to who you could possibly be arguing these things with. And in my mind, there's like only a couple different types of people that you could be hashing this out with and none of which you will ever convince because they're either so wealthy that they are capitalists, like they're actually the millionaires and billionaires who are benefiting directly from capitalism. You're obviously never going to convince them because they know their class interests. They're convinced and you don't need to because there's like five of them. It doesn't matter. Or you could be talking to their mouthpieces, the Ben Shapiro's, the Thomas Sowell's, the Candace Owens, the Jordan Peterson's, again, who are doing very well. You're not going to convince them because, again, their salary depends on believing this shit. Or you're going to be arguing with the peons, the, like the actual working class people who still believe this shit. And this is my trick to end all these debates with working class people who espouse capitalism. Just ask them why. Why should I convince you? Who are you? Like, what political power do you have to change anything? If I convince you to Marxism today, <laughs> right here and now, what's going to happen? Not a fucking thing because they don't have any power. You don't have any power. You're all just hashing this out. You're all just wanking. You're all just fucking jerking each other off. So. Fucking wanking, you bunch of wankers. Yeah, I, I, th I think that at least with like a podcast where people think the same way that you do, it's like personally joyous to do. Oh yeah, but like, just like doing this because it's fun to shit on is, Thomas. Yeah, but it's like when you like actually argue with the person and it goes nowhere, it's awful. Yeah. So I mean, this is definitely off topic, but all these like, is it Vouch or Vosh? How do you pronounce this? You, you pronounce it cringe. Cringe is yeah. the proper pronunciation. All of those people who are like really big on like debating with other people. 
it's just not fun. It's just not worth it. That's like my kind of like takeaway. And I'm sure that most listeners already know this, having argued with people you just can't get through to. It's just not worth it most of the time. Yeah. Usually these like people don't move to those positions in a way that they can be moved out of them without like the material conditions of their lives drastically changing. So just for like one's own mental health, it's just, I just don't think it's worth. And on that note, tune in next week when we have another handcap on to argue about this shit again. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. We, we can at least all agree that that is pointless and there's no reason for it. So yeah, about next week, we're going to do that exact thing. <laughs> Uh, all right go ahead you guys plug your podcast tell us where they can uh, find left shelf and tell us what they can expect when they come to your podcast you know be the mommy i bet i bet it's available everywhere you get your podcast right it is available everywhere you get your podcast and we talk about books short stories literature and talk about it from a kind of political perspective i feel like a lot of people have book clubs but it's just like so uninteresting because they have no lens to like read the pieces through and so we kind of try to talk about what we read through a political lens and either most of the time it's us like tearing apart live authors too so (laughs) we're guilty of the same thing yeah we're not much better Yeah, and that's the Left Shelf podcast for anyone who's interested. Um, okay. I would highly recommend we it. We didn't even give the name. So yeah, Left Shelf pod on most everything or Left Shelf podcast, you know, Instagram, Twitter, MySpace. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, <laughs> but it's up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I really enjoy it. And even having not read most of the pieces that you guys discuss, it's still interesting hearing you guys talk about them because you give good summaries and everything. I actually had meant to ask you the last time I was on, just sort of a production note. Do you guys intentionally space out your episodes enough to where like you say at the end of this episode next week we're going to read this and then that book comes like a couple weeks later so people have time to read it beforehand yes and also there's no way we could do more than one episode every two weeks and Mm -hmm. it feels like doing a bit less is like i don't know i feel like if you want to have like a moderately successful podcast of people who want to tune in like monthly i think is kind of difficult to begin with so we just began every two weeks and that's what Mm -hmm. it is now yeah. I mean, we don't think anyone's actually going to read it more than anything. It's just to give us time to read it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was getting at is for anybody who wants to go check out left shelf. It's a good podcast, even if you haven't read the book, but it's even better if you have read the book. Yeah, definitely. All right. Sterling, go ahead and plug the Twitter. At Stern left this pod. Hell yeah, buddy. Sorry. Nina, did you have something else? No, I was just going to say, and Mike's going to be on an episode with us soon talking about why teeth by Sadie smith yeah Yeah, which is a great book that you will definitely get more out of reading to anyone who's listening so yeah yeah. definitely read white teeth if you can by Sadie smith or any Sadie smith book just because she's a great writer but i will say you know it was funny to me how i came on your podcast and you guys want to talk about like the themes in the book and i'm like this is a capitalist critique this book is an anti-capitalist book and you guys are like mike come on like (laughs) you can't just do the same thing all the time like (laughs) re-education chaos uh, go ahead, Jerry. Uh, I'm going to plug something different this week. So I think a lot of people are definitely aware of how awful Texas is currently. So there's this group called 40 Days for Life that is um, sort of rejoicing over the Texas ruling for abortion. Anyway, they have a whole thing going on September 22nd through October 31st. 
where they are just really filled with vigor and harassing people at Planned Parenthood, harassing people at abortion clinics and things like that. So the thing I want to plug, if you, uh, anyone listening, has time to volunteer and help walk women into these clinics and out of these clinics, it's easy to sign up, especially on the Planned Parenthood website or through any of your local abortion clinics. They always need people to help protect these women's anonymity and, you know, just them being there. Um, and that's really important this month because these people are standing outside. I saw them today at our local Planned Parenthood here in Nashville. So if you have a free weekend, it could really help somebody who's going through a rough time. Uh, if you just sign up, like I said, it's easy and it will, uh, might make somebody's day a lot less shitty. Yeah, it's really good. Cool. And then, uh, so for Ward, I'll plug his Instagram. So that's uh, Millennial Leftist. And you can find him on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And for Cosper, you can find their Patreon at patreon.com slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. So thank you as always to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Sigmund Clark, Stuart, Pete, Colton, Ian, Michael, El Robert, Allison, Zach, James, Raven Enigma, Marvin, Kay Hrida, Not Drinking Water 69, a second James, Mike, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jaron Has the Best Opinions, Jared, Hayden, another Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro You Know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, a third James, Bishop Mew, uh, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bowie Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Mail, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. Thank you all so much. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys all for joining us. This was fun. I can't wait to do it again. I'm sure we have plenty more to talk about on Thomas Sal. We'll see you guys in like a month and a half. We can shit on Thomas Sal some more if you want. Okay. <laughs> Please. Do a Bitcoin <laughs> episode. Do a crypto episode. That we are planning on doing definitely. Have yeah. gone. I need to talk. I, I still, it's been like months. I need to like talk about it. And I have no one in my life. Nino knows. I'm like so. <laughs> so I would love to and actually guys talk about it. Because <laughs> I want No, I really want to. And I do have that in the works. Um, I've started writing up like minimal notes. And I have a lot of things I want to say about it. But yeah, yeah. definitely. You were in my mind to have on that because you asked the last time and I definitely want to have you on for it. So we will do All that. Right. <laughs> Great. Right. Well, thanks again, you guys. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs>